0: Alrighty, welcome to episode 3 of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. At the end of last week's episode, I told you that we would be talking about the Islamic Emirate of Kunar today, but I have decided that that was a lie. Instead, we will be talking about the government of South Russia The reason for this change of schedule is because the Islamic Emirate of Kunar episode would have been short, just like the previous two episodes have been, and I am unsatisfied with the length of the podcast so far, so I wanted to do a little bit more this episode. And I'm pretty sure that I have enough information about the government of South Russia to make a little bit longer of an episode, although I might be wrong, I'm still very new to this, so we'll see. So let's set the stage. It is the Russian Civil War, 1920. The Russian Empire was violently tearing itself apart in a series of battles between the communist Reds and the quote-unquote Whites. The Whites were a much less homogenous and unified group than the Reds. They included Republicans, monarchists, Christian nationalists, national socialists, which they called Nazballs, and they were effectively Russian Nazis. The only thing that really unified these groups was a firmly anti-communist stance. And this large disunity was probably one of the major reasons why the Whites were getting absolutely dismantled for pretty much the entirety of the Civil War. The Civil War had broken out in 1917, but by the spring of 1920, the Whites controlled only a few territories on the Russian borders. They held the far northern Arctic regions of the country, which is great if you want snow and no people. They also held the far east near Alaska, as well as what is today southern Ukraine, including the Crimean Peninsula. And this is where we will be spending most of our time today. So I am now going to paint you a word picture of this region, just in case you don't have a map of Eastern Europe in front of you as you're listening to this episode. Crimea is this sort of diamond-shaped peninsula that dangles off the southern end of Ukraine into the Black Sea. And to the east of it, there is another peninsula that stretches towards Crimea, which is home to a city called Novorossiysk. And it is in this eastern city of Novorossiysk that we begin our story. As I said before, this region was one of the very few that was still held by the whites by the spring of 1920, and the government in the region was known as the South Russian government, which, please note, is different from the government of South Russia. And in March, this South Russian government was in a very bad spot, as all anti-communists were in the region at the time. Thus, they began a mass evacuation of the city of Novorossiysk across the sea and into Crimea. However, they couldn't get everyone across, and this resulted in about 33,000 soldiers and civilians being executed by the Red Army before they managed to escape. Needless to say, this was a PR disaster, and Commander-in-Chief of the White Forces Pyotr Wrangel, dismantled the South Russian government on March 30th. Now, Wrangel was known as the Black Baron, for reasons that remain a mystery to me. He had been born in modern Lithuania, but at the time that was the Russian Empire, and he had served in the Imperial Army for 15 years before the Civil War broke out, and clearly remained loyal to the Imperial cause. So Wrangel was now commanding a nameless government that held only the Crimean Peninsula and not much more. And he wasn't an idiot, he could see very clearly that the situation for the Whites in the Civil War was dire, so he decided to take up the offensive. There was really no point in just sitting around and waiting for the Reds to come down and crush them, so offensive maneuvers were the only option they had. So Wrangell turned his men, pointed them north, and gave the order to invade the European mainland. And the reasons for this direction were twofold. One, he was definitely not going to try and recross the sea to get back to Novorossiysk after the disaster that had unfolded there. And two, Wrangel knew that there were pretty much no Red soldiers in that region. This is because Poland had decided to take advantage of the chaos that had ensued during the Civil War and declare its own independence from the Russian Empire. In response, the Red Army launched a full-scale invasion of Poland, and a massive Polish-Soviet war broke out in the West. Wrangel knew that the Polish campaign was far more important to the Reds than a handful of white Crimean stragglers, so he hoped he could take as much land as possible before they even paid him any mind. And at first, Wrangel's hopes were realized. The appearance of 35,000 Whites sent the Reds in the region into a full panic. In the early days of his campaign, they managed to capture two local cities, uh, Melitopol and Alexandrovsk, as well as 8,000 Red soldiers and a lot of arms and ammunition. By mid-June, Wrangell had effectively doubled his territory, and he decided to stop there in hopes that he could recruit more men and give his own veterans arrest. And it was later that month that the Reds first showed interest in Wrangell's campaign. They sent a contingent of men south in an attempt to cut him off from his Crimean homeland. But he was able to not only defeat but effectively destroy the entire contingent. Wrangel was probably feeling pretty good at this point, and he followed up his successes by sending 1,800 men northeast into the Priazva region, which is home to a major city called Mariupol. Along the way, these 1,800 men made about 700 friends. So, 2,500 whites appeared in Mariupol in an attempt to take it from the Reds. Unfortunately for Wrangel, it seems that the Reds quite liked Mariupol because they really put up a fight. The fighting devolved into guerrilla warfare in the streets for weeks on end, and ultimately Wrangel's forces were defeated. Wrangel didn't know it yet, but this would mark a real turning point for him in his war. But before we get to that, let's take a quick pause. At this point, Wrangle and his council of ministers had been running a nameless state for over four months. They had effectively said, yeah, we don't like communists, and we have a lot of guns, and we're in charge, so let's do some fighting. But on August 16, 1920, Wrangel and his men officially designated their government the Government of South Russia. At this point, the government held the Crimean Peninsula as well as a chunk of the adjoining mainland that was roughly the same size as the peninsula itself. And upon creation, the government of South Russia immediately had nominal foreign allies. France and the United States pretty vocally expressed their enthusiasm and support for Wrangel's cause, and Poland, which was fighting its own war against the Reds, was also very clearly on their side. Unfortunately for the government of South Russia, these allies were in name only because the world at large could see the direction that the Russian Civil War was taking, and they didn't want to commit too much money or resources to allies that were soon to be defeated. And this brings us back into the narrative for a rather bittersweet moment. On August 25th of 1920, the Polish army officially defeated the Red Army in Warsaw and saw the Reds retreat from Poland, meaning that the country was officially independent. Now, this was great for Polish people. They were officially free to eat boiled beets and sausage in peace. But this did mean that all of the Red Army's forces in Eastern Europe were officially focused on Wrangel, And this wasn't just, oh geez, now the Reds have more men to throw at us. The Red Army in Eastern Europe was almost 140,000 men. Which means Wrangel's 35,000 men were outnumbered pretty much 4 to 1. And this is where I think Wrangel starts to make some mistakes, because despite the fact that he was now wildly outnumbered, he began to send more men on an offensive back to Mariupol. They actually succeeded in taking Mariupol this time, but that doesn't change the fact that they were outnumbered 4-1, to and they didn't have the men to be stretching themselves thin like this. And the Reds clearly knew that, because as soon as Wrangel sent his men back to Mariupol, they began an offensive in the northern Tarada region, which was the part of Wrangel's country that was not in Crimea, the, the northern section. For over one month, from September to October, the two forces clashed in massive amounts of trench warfare in the region, because clearly no one had learned anything from World War One. On October 28th, the Reds finally managed to smash through white defenses, and within a day, they had reached the Isthmus of Parakop, which was the westernmost and main route back into the Crimean Peninsula. The day after that, the Reds managed to capture the city of Salkove, which granted them control of the sea route into Crimea as well. And this put Wrangel in a very difficult position because a massive chunk of his army, including him himself, were trapped on the European mainland, cut off from Crimea. In the earliest days of November, Wrangel attacked Selkve in desperation and briefly recaptured the city, granting his men a passage back into Crimea, but on November 3rd, the Reds recaptured the city. The Reds were now clearly tired of this back and forth, so they took the offensive to Crimea itself, but they were initially repulsed by the government of South Russia's army, and now both sides are desperate. The government of South Russia is fighting for its life, while the Red Army is looking at the calendar, seeing that it's early November, and knowing full well that a full-fledged Russian winter is about to set in. Thus far, the saving grace of the government of South Russia was an ancient rampart called the Turkish Wall. This wall is going to be the main character for the next part of our story, so I figure I should give you a little bit of background info. It's called the Turkish Wall, but in reality it's way older than even the idea of Turks themselves. It was actually first mentioned in Herodotus. And from those ancient Greek times, it was continually used and updated, first by the Greeks themselves, then the Romans, the Byzantines, and then by the Turks, who added the largest update and gave it its name. The Whites had occupied the wall and were facing north, defending Crimea from the attack from the European mainland, so the Reds needed to find a way around it. Thankfully, they held Salkovey and the Sea Routes, which they used on November 8th to circumvent the wall. In order to divert attention away from this little sneak attack, the higher-ups in the Red Army came up with a genius idea. They said to each other, You see that wall over there that's manned by thousands of armed men? We're going to throw 30,000 men directly at it. They're just going to run straight at it, and it's going to be great. Imagine their surprise when 15,000 of those 30,000 men were immediately gunned down by machine gun fire from above. Now, in order to make up for that disaster, the landing party behind the wall attempted to besiege the wall's rear defenses, but they were seriously slowed down by their lack of cavalry to a point where the white defenders counterattacked and sent them running. But at some point, it seems that one of the red soldiers looked behind him and realized the number of men chasing them were far less than the number of men being chased, so the reds wheeled back around, chased the whites back to the wall, and then dug in behind them. And then night fell, and all combat effectively stopped for the day. But on November 9th, in the wee hours of the morning... The white defenders took a look around and saw that their encirclement was pretty much imminent, so they snuck out of the wall. And the white defenders tiptoed for about 15 miles until they reached the city of Yushun, south of the wall. Unfortunately for Wrangel and his men, it seems that the Reds had noticed their escape pretty early on, because the Red Army appeared outside of Yushun by 3 p.m. that day. For the rest of the day, the Reds attacked and retreated, attacked and retreated, attacked and retreated over and over again until they ultimately had to call it in for the day. You gotta keep in mind, this was 103 years ago now. There was no night vision or heat vision or anything like that, so nighttime combat was pretty ineffective. But on November 10th, the Reds woke up with a fresh attitude and two contingents of the Red Army actually managed to break through the first line of defense at Yushun. Despite this, the Whites did not retreat. They actually chased the Reds back almost all the way to the Turkish Wall. However, this wasn't the full White Army chasing the full Red Army back to the Wall. This was only the defenders of that one area chasing those two Red Contingents. This put the two armies in a very strange position, where the white defender's left flank was now behind the red's right flank, but the red's left flank was behind the white right flank. That was probably as difficult for me to say as it is for you to picture. Wrangle saw the bizarre position that his men were now in and decided he didn't like it one bit, so he ordered his left flank to retreat back into a defensive position. Therefore, the left flank's cavalry attacked the Reds in an effort to distract them and allow their infantry to escape, and initially this worked pretty well. The infantry managed to chase the Reds back even further, until they ran into a line of Red anti-cavalry machine guns, which immediately cut them to pieces. It was now the Soviets' turn for a cavalry charge, which successfully mopped up the rest of the Whites on the field. The next day, the Red Army finally broke through Yushun's defenses completely and left Crimea open for a full fledged invasion. It was then that Wrangel implemented a contingency plan that he'd had for a long time. On November 13, 1920, Wrangel's government officially began to evacuate the Crimean Peninsula. 150,000 soldiers and civilians left on 120 ships, all of which were bound for Constantinople. Within two days, the Reds had already occupied Sevastopol, which is all the way on the southern tip of the peninsula and is the largest city in Crimea. And the next day, the last evacuees had officially left. Thus, on November 17th, 1920, the Crimean Peninsula had been completely conquered by the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic, and the government of South Russia was no more. This had been one of the last hopes for the white movement in Russia, and with its fall, the white movement was effectively crushed. So that is the end of our story, but now I think it's worth exploring why this country has been forgotten. I think it's safe to say that the fact that all of this took place during the Russian Civil War is a key feature as to why no one knows this story. There are people with advanced degrees on the topic of the Russian Civil War that struggle to summarize it effectively, so it's little wonder that a dinky little short-lived country has been forgotten by the general public. And I think with this particular instance, it really is as simple as that. Thank you all for joining me for episode 3 of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast, and I am not going to make any promises as to what topic will happen next week because apparently I don't know.